Today we continue our series, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong, as you see on the screen behind me. And so we will get into that in just a bit. If you have your Bible, if you turn to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2. But I want to make a few announcements before we uh, jump in. One is, ladies, tomorrow night is the uh, spa night, the pampering night at the Salon Bellissimo. And uh, you have to let us know if you're coming today before you leave. You do that at the information center over here. So if you don't do that, then you can't come. So before you leave today, if you want to get up now and go over to the table, you can do that. But you need to let them know over at the table. So that's uh, tomorrow night from 6 to uh, 8.30 uh, at the salon in Southgate. And then our next newcomer's brunch is one week from Saturday, the 16th. One week from this Saturday. So we have a brunch uh, multiple times per year at our house on a Saturday morning from 10 to about noon. And my wife makes a good brunch, and it's worth coming just for that. And we get to know you a little bit better and you us a bit better. If you've never been to a brunch at our house, then we would love to have you come, really. But we need to know you're coming because she needs to know how much stuff to make. So likewise, you need to, at the information center, let them know... And they will give you a card that has our, a map to our place on it, uh, the date and the time as a reminder for you. So if you want to come, we would love to have you do that, but pick up one of those cards before you leave today, and then those folks will let us know that you're planning to, planning to come, okay? And if something comes up, our phone number's on there. You can call us and tell us uh, we were intending to, but we can't. And I also wanted to let you know what the next series is going to be after we conclude Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. Uh, we do not do outreach series in the summertime. Uh, so three times a year, in the fall, in January, and in the spring, just after Easter, we usually do an outreach series. We send mailers to the community for this hour to invite them to uh, a series on a particular topic. In the summer, we don't do that, and this summer is no exception. We won't be doing that. After we finish this, we will spend the balance of the summer in this hour, preparing ourselves for moving into our ministry center. And as we've talked to the leadership team about that monumental event, when you think about it, I mean, we've been in rented facilities for 10 years, and it's just going to be a big change for us in a ton of ways. All good, I trust, but we need to prepare ourselves for it. So we needed some forum, some time when we could do that, and we deemed this, to be the, this hour to be the best time to do that. So there are a number of important things for us to prepare ourselves for as we look to move into our ministry center. We are targeting the end of October. That's our hope. If we run into major snags, then it'll move to later in the year. But certainly by the end of the year, we're looking to move in there. So there's some things we need to discuss and just prepare our mindset for when we go in. I'll just give you an example so you know the kind of thing that I'm talking about. When you move into a new, uh, a new facility, things are, by definition, by their very nature, different. And if you don't go in with the right mentality, you can attribute that difference to a change in the church rather than simply a change to the physical structure and location. And that can be bad. Because, right now, Many of you have habits that you formed in this building. We will have been here four years, well, in June. That would be this month. We've been in this building for four years. 
In four years, you just get used to certain stuff. You come in, we all come in the same door, pretty much. Some of you come in this door because you bring things in every week. But we've got that main set of doors. We've got that main hallway you come down. And as a result of that door and that hallway coming into this room, you see the same people, you see the same people greeting you, and you're able to enjoy fellowship with a number of people in kind of a routine way. Now you move into a new place, and instead of one entrance, we now control all the entrances. Now, there'll be a main entrance still, but there's a bunch of, bunch of doors to come in and to go out. And you may find yourself on a given Sunday not seeing the same people that you used to see every week just because of that, just because physically the thing has changed. Now, that can be a real downer because there are people that are an encouragement to you that you seek to encourage that now you're going to have to intentionally make it a point to see those people because they're not just in your pathway as you walk in. And if you don't do that, you could find yourself a few months, three months, four months, five months into it, after the euphoria of having our own building and not have to drag stuff in is worn off, <laughs> you now go home in the afternoon and you go, you know, church just seems different. You know, that church has changed. And then, and then it's, this is different, I need to look somewhere else. Did you know that happens with churches? People lose people when they move into a building after a year or two? And part of it is just stuff like I'm talking about here. Now, I'm hoping that if we prepare ourselves for that, we know that there are going to be those kinds of differences, then we can be proactive about it and prepare ourselves to say, I'm going to intentionally go out of my way to see the people that I need to encourage or be encouraged by. I'm going to go out of my way to see people that I don't know, which is a second thing that can contribute to the feeling that it's changed. Namely, there'll be more people. I'm just telling you that. There will be more people. Now, presumably, we want more people. Most of you, if I were to say, how many of you do not want us to reach any more people with the gospel of Jesus? None of you are going to say, yeah, exactly. Nobody will say that. But we sort of feel that. You know, it's just, man, it was pretty comfortable, cafe community and all that. Now, we're, look at these people. And there's more of them. And I don't know everybody, and you know, it's changed. So we've got to prepare ourselves for that. Do we want to reach the people in that community? We do. If we're successful at doing that, and we will be, then that will mean more people. And that will change things for us. So do you see why I'm saying we need to spend some time preparing ourselves? I've got a list of those kinds of things that we need to prepare ourselves for as we anticipate moving into the ministry center. We call it a ministry center, and so I call this, that little mini-series then, Centering on Ministry. So we want to prepare our mindset to center on ministry as we move into our ministry center. So after I get done with this series, then we'll, we'll do that. Living right in a world gone wrong. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 1. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Now notice verse 3. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How many of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? All of them. What Paul, who wrote this, is saying, and the scriptures affirm throughout, is you can't truly know anything unless you know Jesus. I know it seems weird. But you can't truly know something in its connections and in its fullness unless you know Jesus. You can know facts. You can know more facts than I know or that somebody else knows. You can rattle off those facts, but you don't know what those facts mean. They're just facts. How do they fit together? You can describe the way it is. But you can't, you can't prescribe what it should be. You can look at the way things are. But you don't know the way things ought to be. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden and found in Christ. Now I say that for this reason. We're looking at a series, the title of which is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And we all agree, everybody agrees, believers and non-believers, that it's wrong. That there's stuff that, that ain't right. But the problem for the unbeliever is, he can look at the facts, he can see that stuff is askew, that things don't work, that things have gone off the rails, but he doesn't know why. He agrees that there's something wrong, but he can't say why. Now hear this, because wrong assumes a standard. In order to say it's wrong, you've got to first know what it would look like if it were right. Well, where'd you get that? Where did you get the idea of what it's supposed to look like if it were right? And unbelievers don't know that. Without a standard... You can't do with psychology, sociology, politics what you can do with the physical body. Let me give an illustration. You know, you go to a medical doctor if you have a malady, some kind of problem with your, with your body. And the doctor can look at it and he can say there's something wrong. And he can proceed from there's something wrong to now doing something about it. Now, why can he do that? Because he knows what it's supposed to be like. He's got a standard for the physical body. But as you apply it to the humanities, as you apply it to the social sciences, we don't have a standard for what it's supposed to be like outside of Christ. G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? You say, ah, that's where you got the idea to do this. Well, no. I got the idea to do this because I read the newspaper. And Jesus has called us to be in the world and not of the world and all the stuff I've been saying to you in the last few weeks. But some of you were here last week and I told you a week ago, Friday evening, I found myself in the Barnes & Noble just looking at the religion section and there was a book with this title, What's Wrong with the World? And I go, wow, I'm doing a series on that. And I pulled it off the shelf and I started perusing it and I said, wow, that really looks good. However, before I lay down any money, let me see if I could get that wirelessly sent to my iPad. <laughs> Cheaper. 
And not only could I get it cheaper, you know how much it cost? Nothing. I love that price. So I got this book a week ago Friday for nothing. And here I read these words. I maintain that the common sociological method is useless. The common method is that of first dissecting what is wrong and then proposing to fix it. But the only way to discuss social evil is to get at once to the social ideal. We can all see the national madness, but what is the national sanity? I have called this book, What is Wrong with the World? And the upshot of the title can be easily and clearly stated. What's wrong is that we do not ask what is right. And the reason we don't ask what's right is because we don't have a clue. And the reason we don't have a clue is because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in Christ. Now, friends, what that means for you and for me is this. We cannot look to the world for answers to what's wrong with the world. The world does not know. The world does not know what it's supposed to look like and therefore cannot give the prescription or the solution. One universal that you will find in modern social thought is this. Whatever is wrong, it is not my fault. Now, Jimmy Buffett, that great theologian, you know, Margaritaville, and he says, you know, it's, uh, some people say there's a woman to blame. And then he goes on as he finally, you know, he gets drunk enough to realize it's his fault. <laughs> the only way he can admit it's his fault is to be in some sort of a stupor. So the one universal is that whatever's wrong, it's not my fault. So where does the fault lie? In the brain, in society, with other people's kids, some people's kids, right? We say that. We look at it and say, "Why? Look at these! Look at these kids! Look at, look at those people!" But why is it that some people's kids behave the way they do? Why is it that more and more people's kids are behaving the way they are? Because we've rejected any notion of what it's supposed to be like. And we see the consequences of that. It's not me, it's the brain, it's society, it's other people's kids. Why is it that this is a universal, that whatever the problem is, here's one thing we know, it ain't my fault? Why is that the case? Well, let me give you some reasons given by somebody who's much smarter than me. Some of you know the name David Paulison. He has a Ph.D., and uh, he uh, does counseling at the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Anything you read by David Paulison, you ought, to, you ought to read. It's very helpful. He says in an article called Sane Faith in the Insanity of Life, he says this, The first reason people don't want to acknowledge their part in the problems is this. If you face your problems for what they actually are, then you have to acknowledge the problem of evil. What's wrong is much more serious than a sickness or a syndrome. Evil operates on the inside, 
bad zeal, selfish ambition. And evils come at us from the outside. Betrayal, false values, poor role models, shallow relationships, a body that's out of sync, injury, aging, death. Both sin and suffering characterize the problem of evil. But the diagnostic labels and the street wisdom, he says, that goes with it, and even our... And even the friends we talk to, they never mention the E word. What distorts our lives? Evil. What breaks our lives? Evils, both inside and out. Something very dark and very complex is going on. Bad stuff comes at you and bad stuff is an operating system inside you. No one can fail to see the evidence of evil. You feel it, you participate. But people don't want to name it for what it is. We might admit the evil of a Hitler or a suicide bomber killing innocent children. We fail to see the evils operating in normal problems. That's one. Here's a second reason. If you acknowledge the scope of the problem of evil, then you realize you need the Savior of the world. If the scope is really that bad and it's really inside of me and it's really infected all of us, then I need something, no, someone much more radical than the prescriptions that are given. If sin infects us all, then someone not under the power of evil must bring light and life from outside the system of darkness and death and that person is Jesus Christ. And so, friends, this is the way the world then operates. The world operates with seeing that there's something wrong and then trying to go about fixing it, but never having an idea of the ideal. What's it supposed to look like? And the reason they don't have that is because that wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. And the reason that we don't receive Christ is because we don't want to admit the problem is with us. And if the problem is involves each of us, the solution involves someone outside of us. What I've been trying to do these five weeks so far, this is our sixth week, is I've been trying to get you to see these issues from the perspective of what's called a biblical worldview. A, a way of viewing the world that uses the Bible as the lens. So a biblical worldview. I see the world through the lens of Scripture. So what I've been trying to do these last five weeks is what I've been saying to you all for years, if you've been here. You guys have heard me say that if you do not consciously adopt your worldview from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb it from the culture. If you don't consciously and intentionally adopt it from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb it from the world, from the culture. And so I'm trying to show that that's precisely what happens if we don't look to the wisdom that is found in Christ from Scripture to describe and prescribe for us. The late, great Francis Schaeffer said this, about the need to see the world through biblical lenses. He said, Christians have gradually become disturbed over things like permissiveness and pornography, our schools, the breakdown of the family, abortion. But they've not seen this as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. 
They fail to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. He is dead on. We are living in a world that looks through lenses that are distorted. And they have become more distorted as the Christian worldview has been abandoned. Now, what are the consequences of that? The consequences are far and they are wide. There are political consequences, there are sociological consequences, psychological consequences. I'm going to share some of those with you. But let me share some from the political world. If you don't see the problem with us individuals and the sin nature with which we come into the world, then you will prescribe a solution that is worse than the original disease. And I alluded to this a few weeks ago, but the the reason that you are privileged and blessed to live in the most prosperous nation in the world, even with all our struggles, the reason is, is because the guys who founded this country understood what I just said. That whatever system we create has to take into account what people are like. So let me read for you a quote from a book called The American Political Tradition by Richard Hofstadter. He's not a Christian, but here's what he says. The founding fathers looked to their own Christian heritage of the idea of original sin. And they found confirmation of the notion that man is an unregenerate rebel who has to be controlled. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. Private vices could be public benefits. All right, so that's what man is. (laughs) That's your campaign slogan. You're an unregenerate rebel. But that's what what man is, said they. They're right, That's because that's what the Bible teaches. But now they're saying private vices can become public benefits. That is, all right, that's that's the raw material we got to deal with. (laughs) What do we do with it? Well, lo and behold, he's greedy. So let's let him run with his greed. Let's let him make as much money as he can. And he'll make more than he needs because he's greedy. And when he makes more than he needs, our GDP will go up through the roof. That could be empirically tested. Has that happened? Indeed. So private vices could be public benefits. An economically beneficent result would providentially or naturally be achieved if self-interest were left free from state interference and allowed to pursue its ends. So that's where they got the idea of free enterprise, laissez-faire, economics, You let people go, but why? At its root, it was recognizing that people are sinful, greedy. Capitalism works because greed is. And they got the right diagnosis, and so they offered an appropriate solution. Myron Magnet wrote a book called, in the 80s, called The Dream, in the 90s, excuse me, called The Dream and the Nightmare. George W. Bush said this was one of the most influential books that he had ever read. The Dream and the Nightmare. This is what it says. Ideas have real-world consequences. Human nature is not infinitely changeable, but rather it has its own laws. 
Therefore, there is a right life for man, a life that's in accord with our nature. It is not a given of nature that people restrain their aggression, beget and nurture their offspring in marriage, exercise foresight, calculate rationally, or work to improve their condition. He says that's not a guarantee. Now, you hear politicians say all the time, we all want the same things. If you just give people what, you know, the raw materials they need, they'll, they'll go at it, they'll be industrious, all of that. Myron Magnet's saying, nah. And the Bible says, nah. So it makes sense to ask, he says. Oh, he says this, he says, the wonder is not that people don't do it, but rather that they do. In other words, when they do it, that's actually, we should be surprised that they do these good things. So it makes sense to ask how society fosters people that dependably work and marry and are capable of rational calculation, how culture takes the aggressive, egotistical, raw material of human nature each of us is born with and develops in it conscience, reason, and duty. Now, I'll shut up about the political stuff. I'm just giving you examples that say the solution you offer is going to depend on the way you describe and see the problem. And the Bible says the problem is us. And solutions that are offered from outside of us don't understand that and therefore don't work. And that's how people are trying to fix what's wrong with our world. We don't want to admit it's us. We don't want to admit we need someone outside of us. Rejecting the Christian worldview, we offer false solutions. Christian friend, do not buy into the false solutions. When I was in college, um, at first, the first few years, I told you that I was interested in the kind of stuff I just read to you because I wanted to go into politics and, and all that, and then the Lord had other plans uh, for me. But in the course of doing that, I took a bunch of political science classes. One of them was a class on Marxism taught by a Marxist. Well, that's a lot of fun for a Christian kid. I mean, I grew, up in a, I grew up in a pastor's home, went to a Christian school. I'm at the University of Michigan in a class on Marxism taught by a rank Marxist. So I'm learning for an entire semester about Marxism. But it was one of the first times that I had to do what I'm saying here. I had to say, why doesn't this thing work? Now remember, this is the early 80s before communism fell. But it was inevitable that it was going to fall of its own weight. And why? Because it rested on false assumptions about human nature. That human nature is basically good, that there's not evil within us, and therefore if we can change the, the, the system around us, conditions will improve. That's a false assumption. So I wrote a paper called this, Man's Changeable Nature the foundation of Marxism. That the foundation of Marxism is that you can change man's nature from the outside. And then I went on to say, you can't. That's baloney. Argued with a Marxist professor. He's probably still a Marxist. <laughs> but nonetheless, that is, at the, that is at the heart. Now, that's in this macro way, politics, society. Let's get it down to where people really live. And bear with me as I read for you five case studies of people now. 
just regular folk who have problems. But their problems are being misdiagnosed because of the worldview that underlies the analysis. Garrett is 23, and he's a recent college graduate. When some little thing frustrates him or he doesn't get his way, he explodes in anger. It goes way over the top. In college, he was an episodic binge drinker, but he started to drink regularly and heavily over the past year. The effects of alcohol in him are unpredictable. Sometimes booze mellows him out. Most times it lowers his threshold for volatile hostility. In addition to his growing drinking problem, he routinely turns to online pornography for a fix. His friends don't know about that, but they fear for his future, wondering if he'll self-destruct with his drinking and violent temper. Now, let me just stop there. I'm going to read several of these, just case studies of regular people. But what will the world say about Garrett? What will you say about Garrett? What if you were talking to Garrett? Would you give Garrett a biblical prescription, a full biblical prescription of what's going on with him? Official diagnosis and current street wisdom for Garrett? Garrett suffers from intermittent explosive disorder, IED, and is an addictive personality. And Garrett is all about Garrett, and he has control issues, big time. That's Garrett. Here's Sarah, a 29-year-old single woman. She's become increasingly preoccupied with her looks, her calorie intake, her exercise regime. She often, quote, feels fat at 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighing 103 pounds. She's relentless in her activities and self-care, competitive, always trying to prove herself. Her roommates and family have become more and more concerned. Sarah seems joyless. She's been detaching herself from normal social interactions. She seems nervously self-preoccupied most of the time. So she has little time, energy, or attention for anything or anyone besides herself. How do we diagnose Sarah? Diagnosis and current wisdom, Sarah has anorexia. And she's a perfectionist with low self-esteem. Lise is 32 and married with a toddler. And she's felt down ever since she had the baby. Lisa's had a tendency to wallow in self-reproach ever since childhood, but lately it's gotten worse. She's mired in loops of self-condemning thoughts, endlessly rehearsing and bemoaning her faults, both real and imaginary. She's developed elaborate quiet time rituals to help her feel some sense that her life is okay. She never feels like God loves her. Her husband worries that Lisa's ritualistic habits are sticky thoughts about personal failings, uh, and her sticky thoughts, I'm sorry, about personal failings, and that they interfere with her ability to raise their child. Her brooding casts a pall over their relationship, too. The simplest question, how was your day, often turns into a dark spiral of complaint and despair. Her husband walks on eggshells. What can I do? What can I say? And what's the diagnosis for Lise? Lise has a case of clinical depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. She sets impossible standards for herself. And then there's Matt. Not Pastor Matt. But, but this Matt is 26. 
and engaged to be married next year. He goes through frequent ups and downs emotionally. One day he's bursting with wildly optimistic plans and full of energy. He's a walking advertisement for the X Games lifestyle. High energy, high risk, high excitement. But the next day he's lethargic and indifferent, tuning out the world, retreating into his music and his computer game virtual worlds. His fiance's not sure she wants to commit to living on with life with Matt roller coaster. They bicker and she complains about Matt to her girlfriends. Diagnosis and current wisdom for Matt? He's bipolar and ADD, and he's an excitement junkie big time. And then last, Chandra, 21, a senior in college, has battled intense anxiety feelings ever since adolescence. She gets tongue-tied if she's put on the spot in, a, in social interaction. She increasingly avoids social situations and only goes to gatherings or events if she has a friend with her to run interference and carry the ball conversationally. She hasn't been out on a date since a couple of ill-fated attempts in high school when she, quote, almost had a panic attack, trying to figure out what to talk about. Chandra medicates her anxiety with daytime TV, Netflix, and chocolate ice cream. Diagnosis, she suffers from social anxiety disorder. She's shy, gets glued to the tube, and needs her chocolate fix. Now, I told you they were long. Thanks for your indulgence. But I just want to give you five case studies from regular people who go through everyday kinds of problems, but we have adopted a way of looking at them and at us that puts labels on things. David Paulison says this, Do you recognize any of your friends in these people? Do you recognize something of yourself in any of their problems? And do you notice how each diagnostic label simply takes what we already know and then restates it in quasi-medical sounding language? The actual experiences of life lived get turned into a depersonalized condition. Problems become something a person has rather than the array of things a person feels, thinks, and does. It's curious, he says. The labels don't actually add any information to what we already know. Yet they somehow alter the entire way we perceive a person. They even alter how we perceive ourselves. And the story of that person and their struggle gets lost in translation. You see, friends, how we see ourselves... And how we see people, how we see others, radically affects what we are going to offer to them. These people are much, you and the people that we're seeking to reach, are much, much more than a condition and a label. There is much, much more going on with you and me and them than a condition and a label. What does a Christian worldview say about it? A Christian worldview says this, that this person, as, as is mine, as is yours, this person's heart is active every moment of every day. 
And with every one of those things that they've picked up in their upbringing and stuff that they're experiencing and the anxieties that they feel, with every last one of those, there is a heart that is transacting with God and most often not accurately. And the Bible would say, what is going on in the heart of Garrett and Lise and Sarah and Matt and Chandra? What's happening in his or her heart? Now, isn't that what the Bible would say? And just in case you need a refresher on that, I'd like to end with taking a look at a few passages that say that very thing. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. In verse 43... this is Jesus talking. If you have a red letter edition, these are in red letters. The entire Bible is really red letter. You guys have heard me complain about this, so I'm just saying. It's all God's word. It's all Jesus. So, but if you've got red letters, this is Jesus while he walked the earth saying this. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus would look at all of these symptoms and all of these behaviors and he would say there may be a ton of other things going on. I just want to make clear that in all that I read I'm not dismissing the person's background and the person's... I'm not. There may be all kinds of other things going on but the most important thing that's going on is an active heart before God that is contributing to what comes out in words and in actions and in behavior. Do you notice that in none of the current wisdom and diagnosis, in none of that is the heart diagnosed? None of it. Now, to state the obvious, I think, when we talk about the heart, we don't mean the thing pumping blood, right? In the Bible, the heart is the center of the, the individual. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, says the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So Jesus says, the words we speak, the actions we perform, they start on the inside. Current wisdom, worldly wisdom, always has it on the outside. It's not me. It's not my fault. We dismiss that entire dimension. And therefore, we can't get it right. 
we depersonalize it, we make it a condition, we label it, and we can't get it right. And Jesus says, it's the heart. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that does raise the final question, who can know it? And how can it be diagnosed? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. If the heart is the seat of what I say and what I do, all other things going on taken into account, the heart is at the center, says the biblical worldview, says the Bible, then the heart has to be treated. But if the heart can't be known, Jeremiah, if we can't know the heart, then what can be done? Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It, the Word of God, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it, now get this line, the Word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Jesus says the root is our hearts. The fruit is our behavior and our words. But the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful, and who can know their own hearts? The answer is nobody. But there is somebody who knows my heart and knows your heart. And this all-wise one, God, has written a book that judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Verse 13 goes on to say, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, we're going to end just a couple minutes. But, you know, you read that and that sounds scary. God knows everything going on in the recesses of my heart, and he does, and yours. And I'm going to have to give an account before the all-knowing one. And if we just leave it there, it is just scary indeed. But thanks be to God, God doesn't write those things to scare us. He writes those things to properly diagnose us so that we then are willing to embrace the proper prescription, the proper solution. So the fact that God knows my heart should be a sound, uh, should be a note of joy for you, actually, a note of hope for you. Why? Because God knows what's going on in me. God knows my struggles. God knows why it is that I'm socially backward and I am too embarrassed to make a mistake, therefore I can't, I can't talk in front of people and I can't go outside of the house. He knows what makes me tick and why I do that. And he's talked about it in his holy word that judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. He has given us a book, a diagnostic manual, DSM-4 for those of you. This is DSM Infinite. That diagnoses us accurately. And then tells us what the solution is. That God knows this and has covered in his book is found in a couple of passages that I'll just give you because we're out of time. 
But 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What that's saying is the word of God covers everything. That ought to give you a great note of hope. An all-knowing God has written a book that covers everything. And then Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. There is given a list of just your garden variety, common sins of the flesh, sins of the sin nature, stuff we do, stuff we say because of what we are. And you got those three verses just listing them. And if you read read that stuff, some of it you don't do, some of it you do do, same thing with me. So it nailed some of my sins, nailed some of yours. Some of them I'm, I can say, cool, I don't do that. But then it's got this catch-all phrase at the end. Some of you have turned to it. Verse 21. And it just says, and things like these. And the like, says the NIV. So it's this whole string of stuff that we do that causes us problems, that emanate from our hearts, our sin nature and the like. And God understands and knows every piece of it because He made you and He knows you intimately. That should be a note of hope for us. Because God can now accurately diagnose what's going on in our hearts and accurately give us a prescription to solve it. Living right in a world gone wrong means we've got to diagnose what's wrong accurately. We can do that because God has done that. The world cannot. The world always places it outside of us. God says it's inside of us and I alone have the solution. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at God's diagnosis and his prescription. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for the opportunity to think about these important issues that relate to what makes us tick what makes us say the things we do, do the things we do, think the things we brood about, have the kinds of fears and phobias that we have. You have told us where it emanates from. And we all contribute, every last one of us, contribute to the things with which we struggle that come from our hearts. Indeed, Lord, you have shown us in your word that there are things insinuated upon us by others. There is baggage that we bring to us in our relationships and before you that we've seen modeled by others and in our upbringing, the baggage that goes with that. You acknowledge all of that and its effect on us. But we are not just that. We are not simply depersonalized labels and conditions. Living, breathing human beings, magnificent in our creation, made in the image of Almighty God. The God who knows us intimately. The God who can diagnose and prescribe. Oh, thank you, Lord God, that you care enough for us to tell us about us and tell us the truth about us. Thank you that you became one of us and that you were tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, in the next few weeks as we look at what you say about each of us, 
and what you say about our struggles, and most important, what you say about the solution, that we will become more like Jesus as a result of applying your prescription, and we will be better equipped to minister to those that you've called us to reach, a world that has gone wrong. Go with us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.